0: Okay, the title of the message this morning is Making a Living, Part 1. And I, I apologize partially for having Pastor Steve read 27 verses, but it's necessary because we have to grasp the entire context of the chapter in order to understand what's going on so we're going to move on this morning from first Corinthians chapter nine verse one and uh, paul's rhetorical questions to the church at corinth that we've been going over in weeks past we have meticulously answered the first three questions that Paul poses in verse one of chapter nine: Am I not free? Am I not an apostle and Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The fourth question in that verse that Paul poses is Paul asking the Corinthians, Are you not my work in the Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And then Paul carries on through verse 2 and onward into the rest of chapter 9, defending... The validity of his apostleship the entire way through to the very end of the chapter, as evidenced by what Pastor Steve just read a moment ago. I'd like you to see a couple of things in regard to the latter part of verse 1, where Paul says, are you not my work in the Lord? By posing this question to the church at Corinth, Paul is... Once again, asserting very foundational, a very foundational apostolic defense regarding the validity of his apostolic claims. Okay? Namely, that he feels his work in the lives of the Corinthians is yet, his work in their lives is yet another evidence of his apostolic plausibility. You with me? In other words, or more simply put, as I said one time previously, Paul has skin in the game. Remember that? Paul feels as though his personal sacrifice or his work in the Lord, as he calls it, um, toward the Corinthians is proof positive that he is committed to them, and to their spiritual well-being in Christ Jesus. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? And in using the word my there in that phrase, he indicates how personal his ministry is to the Corinthians that he has in mind. Anytime any of us begins to sacrifice Of ourselves in order to minister to others, that quote unquote ministry then becomes very much our own. And this sentiment of personal sacrifice echoes that which many of us um, who do ministry often feel namely, that all of our selfless work in the Lord among those in the body of Christ should not only warrant the recognition of others, but it also should serve as viable proof of our commitment to and in the lives of others. And that's what Paul is trying to say here in that one phrase. And this goes for both vocational ministry and lay ministry. Vocational Ministry is just a fancy way of saying someone who's paid to do ministry. And lay ministry is someone who perhaps is not a pastor, but is a lay person, and they're doing ministry. Sadly, many lay people in Christianity today have no idea as to what goes into the process of discipleship or discipling an individual and or a group of people. And I say sadly because um, we are all called, all of us, everybody sitting here is called of God to minister to others. Yet many, I say that without reservation, many of the lay people refuse to do so. And as such are clueless as to what true ministry entails. In other words, they have no skin in the game because they won't put any skin in the game. They refuse. They willfully neglect the selflessness that the Lord has called all of us to. And in so doing, they make every excuse in the book as to why they can't participate in the selfless acts of that which should be common in the daily lives of each professing believer, not just pastors. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look, the fact that you are my work in the Lord is yet one more proof of my apostleship. He is saying, I have not only become involved in your lives, but I have invested my time and energy in your particular situation. I have exposed myself to personal risks that are associated with such a relationship as ours. And this is why Paul feels, it really is, it's why he feels he has a right to proclaim what he says in verse two, if you look at it. In verse 2, he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They may not be committed to you, Corinthians, but I am committed to you. And my commitment to you is not only proof of my apostleship, but it is also what gives me the right to expect that you will be accountable to me in the Lord about things that pertain to your Christian growth and your Christian sanctification. For example, if Paul was among us today doing ministry, he might say the following. He might say, if you want me to take time away from my family and away from other ministry responsibilities in order to meet with you once a week and disciple you then at the very minimum minimum I expect you to be in church every Sunday. And not not just once or twice a month, because as we previously discussed, you can't forsake fellowship of other believers or fellowship with other believers, and you can't skip sermons and teaching and expect to grow in the Lord. This is still Paul talking in my mind, okay? Or Paul might say this. He might say, uh, you say that, you know, you messed up by being irresponsible with your finances and you promised to meet with me twice a month so that I can walk you through the scriptures that will teach you about how to be a good steward of your money and how to bless God with your money. And you also agreed to let me create a reasonable budget with you and your wife so that you can uh, see exactly how to manage your money from payday to payday. And like I promised you, I I will not only spot you the first month's rent and security deposit on your new apartment, but I will allow you to keep that money as a gift from me to you if you show accountability by following and sticking to the budget that we've created in light of biblical stewardship and biblical financial principles and God-given resources. Or yet, one more Mm -hmm. example, Paul might say, I will commit to praying and fasting um, alongside you, let's say every Tuesday, to help you overcome your addiction to pornography, if you agree to call me right away, if you feel like you might give into the temptation that you've been bombarded with by Satan for years, if you call me at any given time of the day or night, I will pray with you, I will counsel you, and I will help you whenever I can. In other words, I sow into you your life. I sow into you personally, and in turn, all you do is agree to be accountable in the form of making progress and growing in Christ. Now, those are just a few. Those aren't made up. Those are real. I've I've been in those situations, and I've said those things to people over the years more than once. Okay, so these are real examples that pertain to, to ministry and accountability that so often make up a portion of our Christian lives as we disciple other Christians. Such ministerial commitments that we've made to each other are not only proof that we have skin in the game, but more importantly, they are the seal that validates the legitimacy of our Christian faith in general. Faith without works is dead. Proof. Prove, I should say. Prove that your faith is alive by ministering to others, like the Apostle Paul, by getting some skin in the game. Back to our text. Who exactly are the others that Paul is talking about in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 9. The others are those who have been questioning Paul's apostolic authority all along. We've been studying this for weeks now. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, and 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through chapter 12. That's where we see Paul getting challenged by people that do not think his ministry is Apostolic. And Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians that at least I'm an apostle to you, meaning that it's through my preaching of the gospel to you that you've become Christians and my apostleship was in turn validated. Then he says, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What does that mean? He means the very fact that you have been converted to Christ through my ministry is proof that my preaching and my ministry through the Holy Spirit has changed your lives. The very existence of your church, Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian, is evidence of my apostolic seal and authenticity. Okay, this reminds me of the infomercials, right? Where they uh, try to make their product more attractive to the consumer by telling them that it has some authority's sale or seal, I should say, of authenticity. A seal on a letter or a document in the ancient Near East was a guarantee, it was a guarantee of the quality and authenticity of that document. So Paul was saying here that the very fact that the Lord saved these Corinthians through his ministry is proof positive that his ministry was authentic and effectual unto salvation. And Paul didn't stop here. He was not only about the business of proving his apostolic authenticity, but he was also about the business of showing the Corinthians that he also had rights and privileges as an apostle. In fact, Paul will argue that all ministers, all ministers of the gospel should have these privileges that he is about to declare from verse 3 onward through the rest of the chapter. And as such... I want to make a very clear distinction from from the get-go here. From verse 3 onward, Paul is not just talking about apostles. And on the other side of the spectrum, he's not just talking about lay people either. Okay, Instead, he is about to defend the God-given rights and privileges of pastors, evangelists, missionaries, etc., etc., who he will argue should be compensated either monetarily or with other privileges for that which God has called them to be and called them to do. In other words, these are ministers of the gospel who make their living from the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, Paul comes right out and says this. He says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Can't get any more clear than that. Our Lord Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 10, verses nine and 10. He said to his, to his disciples, do not acquire, he was sending them out to do ministry. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And Paul teaches Timothy the very same thing in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Paul says this, the elders, and by the way, just let me say this for those of you that don't know, elders and pastors are synonymous here, okay? Same Greek word, elders and pastors. So the elders are the pastors who rule well, Paul says to Timothy, are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul has chosen two Old Testament passages to quote here in First Timothy in order to make his point. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. This is a passage where God tells the Israelites how to properly treat their oxen. More specifically, when the ox was threshing wheat, they were not to muzzle the ox. Now, what does that mean? Oxen were com- commonly used to tread or thresh the grain underfoot, okay? Okay. Walk on the grain, hence the term threshing floor. And this treading process, okay, refers to the method of separating the edible grain from the unwanted husk or outer covering of that grain. The ox would walk over top the harvested grain on the threshing floor in order to separ- uh, separate the grain from the stalks and the husks. This example that Paul gives emphasizes a principle of fairness and kindness towards oxen. You see, if one were to muzzle their ox by covering its mouth, they would be preventing it from eating grain while it was threshing on the threshing floor or trampling it underfoot. That would be cruel for the animal, God says, And so God prohibited it. The ox should be able, listen, the ox should be able to eat as a benefit of his work. The ox should be able to eat, okay, as a benefit of his work. So what Paul is saying is this. If God is going to prohibit this practice for the fairness and benefit of a dumb ox, then how much more important is it in the sight of god to allow a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist to benefit from his labor by getting paid that's what paul's saying in addition the passage in first corinthians five seventeen and 18 highlights two aspects related to honoring elders or pastors one their role r o l e in leading the church i should say their role in leading the church voice inflection is important and two their work in preaching and teaching this is why paul calls it double honor okay the role of leading the church and the role of preaching and teaching this is why he says, double honor the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, what did Jesus and Paul mean when they both quoted Deuteronomy twenty four fifteen? The laborer is worthy of his wages. Plansip- that's it. The laborer is worthy of his wages. That particular Old Testament passage, along with the parallel passage of Le- Leviticus 19.13, and, and there is one Leviticus 19, means this. God instructed the Israelites to pay laborers their daily wage by sunset of the day in which they worked in their fields. I'm going to say that one more time. God instructed the Israelites to pay laborers their daily wage by sunset of the day in which they worked in their fields. Why? Well, because many times laborers lived from day to day. In other words, they didn't have a stash of cash buried in a mason jar out in the woods somewhere. If they didn't work that day, they didn't eat that day. Their family needed that money at the end of the day to go and buy food or to go and buy the ingredients that they needed to prepare food. God was so serious about his people exercising this act of fairness and compassion that he said that if they didn't pay the laborer his wage by sunset, that he, God, would hear the worker when they cried out to him about their wage being withheld, and when he heard their cry, God said that he would see it as sin committed against them, and as such, there would be severe consequences. I had a couple of jobs before I got into ministry where I worked for straight commission, meaning I didn't get paid a salary. I only made a commission on what I sold. But here's the kicker. My customers, and this is typical in all sales, until, even, even till today, uh, my customers had one to 90 days to pay their bill for what I had sold to them. Most of them wanted to hold on to their money. Now, they had a lot of money, okay? They were getting a lot of interest. So uh, most of them wanted to hold on to their money as long as they possibly could. So many of them waited until 90 days were up to pay their bill. There were also a very good handful who tried to stretch it past the 90 days. So with those customers... I had to take time away from selling so that I could go to their place of business as a bill collector. Because if they didn't pay their bill, I not only didn't eat, but my boss didn't eat either. And he would be on me to go and get the money, right? What's the moral of the story? People are basically wicked, okay? They don't care about what you're eating or if you eat, okay? They wallow in their depravity and they're as happy as a pig in mud. These folks knew that I had a wife. I mean, I talked to these, I became friends with these guys, right? They knew I had a wife and two kids in diapers. They don't care. They <laughs> didn't care. So moral of the story, you can see why God wanted his people to pay their laborers at the end of the day and not withhold their pay. I'm happy to say, very, very happy to say that when I went around speaking in various churches to raise money for campus ministry, most of the senior pastors got this right. The majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them would have someone in the church count the offering that was taken while I was preaching or speaking, and cut me a check before I walked out the door, which is incredible. And that was even if I was speaking in an evening service. They would have the bookkeeper go and unlock our office and cut me a check before I left. Why? Because they knew that a home missionary lived off pledges and donations. Okay, They knew I needed that offering sooner rather than later, and as such, they were very accommodating about that. Paul does not shrink back from being quite bold in this chapter about this subject. That's what I want you to see. For example, he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What material things is Paul referring to? He's not referring to specific material things as much as he is referring to, listen, the practice of reciprocity. The practice of reciprocity regarding spiritual and material blessings. I just have to interject here. One of the paraphrases that I, I was reading, this particular verse in paraphrase Bibles, which you should stay away from. Use them as kindling wood in your fireplace. Um said, this verse, verse 11, it said, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much to ask for a sandwich and a drink, is what it said. The Greek isn't even close to that. The context isn't even close to that, okay? It could be any material thing, not just food, but whatever. So my point is It's not referring to spiritual or specific things. He's referring to the practice of reciprocity regarding spiritual and material blessings, okay? It's the sowing and reaping that stands out in verse 11 of our text. Not the definition of what Paul might mean when he uses the word material or other translations, especially older ones use the word carnal, carnal things, material things, things of the flesh, things you need. Could be clothes, could be rent, could be, you know, whatever, car. So we not only see this here in verse 11, but we see it elsewhere also. Romans chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. He's talking about churches in Macedonia and Achaia taking up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem who were broke. And he says, yes, they were pleased to do so. The Gentile churches, Macedonia and Achaia, were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. Now now the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are indebted to them. And then he says... For if the Gentiles, having shared in their spiritual things, let me say that again. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Okay, let me explain. Paul highlights the willingness and gratitude of the Gentile churches to contribute to the welfare of their fellow Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And in verse 27, Paul emphasizes the rationale behind their generous generous giving. And it is this. This is very important. Paul asserts that the Gentiles have received spiritual blessings through their faith in Christ, which were originally, remember, entrusted to the Jews. Therefore, they had an obligation to reciprocate by sharing their material blessings with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So this passage serves as a reminder that as followers of Christ, we should not only share in spiritual blessings, but also demonstrate practical love and practical support for one another's material blessings, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians nine eleven. Now, over in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about bearing each other's burdens in the context of reciprocity. Verse 6, the one who is taught, the one who is taught the word, capital W, is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That's the elders and the pastors. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The all good things, okay, that Paul speaks of here are material blessings, okay, just like verse 11 of our text. They are to share material blessings with those pastors who teach them spiritual blessings. They are to share material blessings with those pastors who teach them Spiritual blessings. I've talked about this before. There are Christians out there today who think that pastors should be poor. Some of them think pastors should be dirt poor. And they think they should drive 20-year-old cars and that their children should get all their clothes at a thrift store. That's what they believe. I've had conversations with these people. I, I told the story once before, but it takes a minute for those of you that haven't heard it. One time I was standing outside of church, you know, as, as a home missionary, as a campus minister, minister and I was wearing a Ralph Loren shirt that my wife got me at a, what do you call that name? What kind of store was that? Discount store, all the way up in Meadville, okay? Did you get it for like 25 bucks or something like that? Somebody came up to me in the parking lot and they said, oh, ministry must be pretty good to you. You're wearing a Ralph Lauren shirt. That's the kind of attitude that people have. That person had no idea that I got it at a discount store. They just automatically pass judgment right away. You shouldn't be wearing a Ralph Lauren shirt because you're a pastor. (laughs) So, okay, anyway. So (laughs) this is far from biblical, folks not only in light of the scriptures we've already gone over uh, this morning, but also a slew of other passages. And it's not just material blessings that Paul speaks of regarding this subject, but it's also what I would call blessings of the heart, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, fellow Christians, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another, he says. So it's not just material blessings, but it's also, I'll call them attitudinal blessings that Paul speaks of in regard to pastors. Now, next week, will be part two of making a living, okay? And we will um, remain in chapter nine and we will look at why it was, you heard Pastor Steve read this morning, why it was that although Paul vehemently fought for the rights of pastors, he personally chose not to take advantage of those blessings that he was actually in favor of for those other pastors. We're going to look at that. We're going to see why. Let's pray.